sound design. Yeah. So Michael Curtis, where are we? We are in your hotel room. <laughs> in what city? We are in Washington, D.C., District of Columbia. And what are we doing here? We are doing audio for a very special event. Right. In January, but we can't talk about it. No. Very much. Uh -uh. But we are going to talk about it, but a little bit later. Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by mastering engineer and live sound engineer, Michael Curtis. Michael, welcome to Sound Design Live. It is great to be here. I definitely want to talk to you about loudness meters, floor bounce, speed of sound, setting compressor attack times, and how you screwed up a $200,000 sound system. But before I do that, after you get a sound system set up, what's maybe one or two of your favorite test tracks to play through it? Get Lucky by Daft Punk. Just Mick Gazowski, Bob Ludwig, a brilliant band. It's just, you know, I think you should have reference tracks. So like here is Sonic Perfection encapsulated. And that's one of them for me. It, it, <laughs> it's just so good. Tight, but still deep. The kick hits enough. It's not overbearing. Vocals are smooth in the middle. Hi-hats are real crispy. And so if you're getting your head torn off or something wrong, because they're like, they have a lot of highs, but it's nowhere near overbearing. So it just it reveals a lot about a system. I think that track. I notice that I'm paying more attention to the things that you say about timbre and sound quality than other people do, or the other people might, because you have this word mastering engineer attached to you. <laughs> Somehow I immediately like take your opinion more seriously. Do, do you feel like, is that, is that fair? Sure. Is that unfair? Uh, no, I think that's fair. I think a lot of people, because um, I think we, I talked to you about this yesterday, when's the last time you're sitting next to someone on a plane and he said, hey, we don't have to be best friends. My name is Michael. What's your name? Oh, my name is John and I'm a mastering engineer. You, you don't meet them out in the wild. And it's just such an uncommon crap. They only, unless you're on gear sluts or whatever, you really don't have that camaraderie with your friendly neighborhood mastering engineer. And so essentially it's this kind of perceivably Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. I send it back and I get a better type of craft. And it's not very relational, at least in this point in time and i hope that changes right we don't live together for a month while we do a record exactly it's very much like oh i got this guy or girl somewhere who's going to go do it and it's very much other it's very distant it's very misunderstood even by other professionals in the career and so when, when someone says hi i am this it carries just a different sort of weight right. even though i'm you know what, I, I, what do you think the assumption is because i feel like the assumption is that i send you a thing and you use your golden ears to tell me what's wrong with it sure Sure. I mean, that, are, are you asking, like qualifying that assumption is what you have? I'm saying that's, that's, I'm realizing that's kind of my assumption. And I'm wondering what you think other, what is the common assumption about what yeah, a master yeah, yeah. engineer does? I, I, and I think that's a great one. If, if I had to say, here's what people commonly have and what I wish they have. Here's, here's what they commonly have is post-production. There wasn't a thing before it was, it went straight to tape or straight to vinyl or straight live. And then now we have post-production, we have time to mess with things. And then now that mixing and producing is becoming even more blended and all these different things, like you could do it all by yourself. So it's like, how much do you want to divide up the train like how, into how many cars and who's in charge of what car on the train as it's driving past you? And at the very end, I'm the caboose, you know? And so, but the, that could be the engineer at the front if they wanted to. I mean, just like you have guys who do it all in their basement and that's fine, that's great. That's a more power to you. But I would say that when people 
have all these things that were missed or expectations now that they're actually in the process that don't get met, I'm the person that has to revive all of them because the can is being kicked down the entire road and I'm the, well, literally the last place they can stop. And so if there's any sort of, ah, I wish this would have sound better, or I wish I hired this other mix engineer, or I hate my bass tone, whatever, I'm supposed to fix it, <laughs> which is sometimes unfair. Sometimes that's a fun challenge, but all that to say it's, I am the last stop before it goes to the listener. So that is just a weird moment for an artist of like, I have to let this go now. And so there's, it's a very, an emotional thing <laughs> that I have to handle in a very technical way. Mm-hmm. And so, so some people handle this really well and trust me a lot. Let me do my thing. And they're like, okay, cool. Some people have a lot of say and have really specific outcomes, but, but I, back to going what you said, like, yeah, I would hope to use my experiences, my setup and my gear to hopefully bring my honestly biased opinion to your music and make it sound better. What annoys me is when people namely master engineers say like, well, I'm a transparent, unbiased master engineer. There's no such thing. You have your experiences, your gear, your process, and that makes you you. And so by saying I'm transparent and I approach everything with a clean slate, you're lying. You're lying. It's, <laughs> it's not true. Bias. Also, are people really, pay, like, is that really a valuable asset? Like, can you really get paid good money to, to be transparent? I don't know. I guess. I mean, that's what our jobs are, I guess at the end of the day is to just make things louder and, and have no one notice us. Yeah. Sorry. I'm opening up like a whole other sure, can of worms, right. I guess, but that that's interesting that yeah. You, to, to how do you market yourself? But maybe that's just part of marketing. Maybe mastering engineers just say I'm transparent because that's what the client wants to hear. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like you said, that's a very giant can of worms, but I think I should be able to say I'm good at X, Y, and Z. And this is how I listen and why and why I make these decisions. And if you like that, you want that outcome then hire me. If you don't hire somebody else. So, cause some master engineers want to work. They think it's an asset that they're able to work on every genre, which is cool. It's great to be able to listen to classical and know what a fugue is or a German augmented sixth or whatever, and then go to death metal and be able to keep up with the kick pattern. But that just takes a lot of time to be able to be well-versed in all those different genres. So let's talk about getting work for a little bit. You told me something interesting yesterday, which is that you went to school in Arkansas, then decided to move back to Texas. Mm-hmm. And so this is right around the time that you got married and you and your wife decided to move to Texas. And you said, I'm going to start my own post-production company doing mastering. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's all interesting because I've moved a lot as well. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm always kind of interested in how people are sort of rebuilding their careers. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when you move, you really learn how important personal referral and building relationships are. And so you move back to Dallas, mm-hmm. the Dallas area. Yep. And you told me that for the, your first six months there, you just kind of went door to door to all of the studios and, re- and production houses in the area and just tried to get coffee dates with everyone. And then you said about six months after meeting with everyone, then people started calling you. So I want to know more specifically how you did that and how it worked. Yeah. But my first question when I heard that was, how did, how did you know to do that? Like I did so many things wrong in terms of trying to get work before I learned kind of how the system works. Mm-hmm. So, so how did you know that that would work? It wasn't until I did other stupid things first. Okay. And so I did do stupid stuff like run ads just on like a LinkedIn thing, which was again, the, you know, 
wrong platform, number one, and ads with no credibility don't work. And so I, I did do that. I saw zero results very quickly. So I was like, okay, I, this isn't the easy way out. Like I can't build a career doing it, you know, just throwing money sure. at it. We're, we're all looking for a way. How, how can I do the least amount of work and talk to no one? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're so right. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, so I, I just... Kind of go back to what I was saying earlier is like you don't run into your friendly neighborhood mastering engineer. And so if I approached a studio in a personal way that was interested in how I can help their music connect with not only the artists they serve and their fans better, that speaks, I think, volumes to people because at the end of the day, even a mix engineer is unsure of their work. And so if they have someone that they trust when they send it to, that's not just, I'm not just the humanized lander of just upload to a server, get it back, and hopefully it sounds better. I am the person actually most oftentimes giving feedback on their work. And the clients I enjoy working with the best, I've had for a long time, they like my ears and they ask me questions. Even before it's time for me to get the mixes to the master, this is version two, and I'm mastering version four, but they're like, hey, the client asked for this. Are the vocals really that out on top? Can you take a listen real quick? So that type of relationship I really enjoy. It's not necessarily a mentor role, but they just know they've been working on this project for a month. They're in the hole. Their ob- objectivity is waning away. And having a set of ears that they trust to weigh in on stuff is really helpful, especially when you're mixing song number 12 on a record and you're like, just get this out of here. So being able to be in the room with them and say, like, I want to do that and not just be a meat grinder it was really helpful. That's really interesting. So it sounds like you, your pitch to them when you met with these studios was really to just sort of make more transparent this relationship and how it could benefit them. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I mean, it also just helped that you were clear that having relationships with studios would be really helpful because I wouldn't even thought of that. And I think what a lot of people do, like I would have first thought, oh, I should go direct to artists. And it's a lot harder to explain the problem solution scenario of mastering. Exactly. Right. You nailed it. You nailed it. Yeah. Artists don't, when they see another $80 line item, they're like, what's that for? But when their mix engineer says, hey, I've got this guy or girl I really, really trust, and they're going to raise the level of your work at least a letter grade, even after you already trusting with me, is that worth 80 bucks to you per song? And most often they say, yeah. Great. So, so I want to know then how that worked out for you in live sound, because mm-hmm. after you were in Texas for a while, then you decided to go back to Arkansas yep. and you went back to work for a company you already had been working for, but you've been freelance doing various audio things for a while. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so has, have you, have you pretty much exclusively relied on this process of get one-on-one meetings get work? Like, is that mm-hmm. kind of two-step process? Tell, tell me about finding work in live sound. Yeah. People want a hundred clients before they want 10. But oftentimes, if you do really, really good work for those 10, they become your own marketing force for you. And so people think about scale way before they think about intimacy, trust, relationships. And so you have to just like any type of plant that you have that can you can kind of prune and multiply. I don't think pruning is the right word, but you can kind of graft off and take over. You have to have a healthy plant to begin with to take something from it and plant it somewhere else, right? And so I think find 10 seeds and not water them to death. That would kill the plant, but like help them grow really, 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 really well. And then there will be, as they grow and mature and they their own careers grow and their skill sets grow, they are going to help kind of multiply for you. And so I would say just find those 10 that you can really, 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 really trust. And I did that usually first with 
in-person meetings, but it's just like, you know, I meet with a concert promoter who, or a person who is actually in charge of a concert series who then get moves over to this nonprofit and they have a banquet. So it's like people are changing roles. So they're going into different spheres. So if you can have the, all these really, really, really healthy plants to beat that analogy to death that are all moving around growing their own careers, they bring you with them, mm-hmm. which is cool. And so, um, I think just make 10 people as happy as they freaking can. <laughs> and then <laughs> that's the best way to get the hundreds in my book. Yeah, that sounds great. So uh, how, how do you find those 10? I mean, are you doing research on these people before you're reaching out to them and making sure that they do the kind of productions that where you felt like you would be successful? Yes. Yeah. You, you definitely have to qualify those relationships. And this, to a certain point, making sure you're ready for every gig that could come across is kind of a hard thing to do, but there are certain base level skills that can apply a lot of areas. And that's why what was helpful for me is like, I'm a bass player too, is, you know, being an engineer and only having that skill set and not being on stage is good. Or I mean, it is helpful to have that skill set, but what helped me, uh, I say accelerate that as I was not only to mix for people, but I can go on stage and play with other bands. And then I would play and develop those relationships. And if they wanted to go do a record or do something, they're like, oh, if you're good at bass, you're probably good at other things. So having adjacent, but also different skill sets that could put you in even different, more different situations than if you were just running sound is awful helpful. And so I wouldn't say that like, if you really want to go on tour, then the next best thing is to sell mattresses because you just, cause you meet a lot of people, but adjacent skill sets that put you in different networks are also really helpful to lean on if you want to grow that network faster. Can you give me an example of, of something, you know, for you personally not selling mattresses? Yes. And so I could probably three different times I've played bass for a group just because someone else either referred me who was either had done work with the band before. So that was a referral. Number one, I played bass for them and they're like, we're working on an EP and we've already been in the studio and like, well, I, I do mastering mm-hmm. like, Oh, again, they've never met a friendly neighborhood mastering engineer. <laughs> and they're like, cool. Yeah. And I, you know, I mastered the record or, um, even doing, uh, doing a bunch of corporate shows in Northwest Arkansas. I've mixed, you know, talking heads forever, but then they built this 12,000 cap venue and because I did good on those kind of, you know, sometimes not very exciting corporate shows, uh, they say like, well, you know, your audio fundamentals really well. Are you familiar with the music scene? I'm like, yeah, well, I played a lot. I haven't done a huge, a bunch of huge arena shows, but because I knew the technical side and can troubleshoot and do whatever, they're like, okay, come help system tech at this venue. Um, sure. And I'm sure that connects over to, you know, the corporate world as well. You know, you might uh, join a BNI section and and meet people there who are going to end up hiring you for stuff. Maybe the, I don't know, the church that you go to or the church that you work at. Sure. I'm just trying to think like even potentially the band that you play in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's just the, the audio umbrella is getting even, even wider these days of this particular skill sets or niches or opportunities that can go. And like, you know, even someone on a Zoom call, half people don't know how to get their internal microphone working. And so sure. just being like, a person who's friendly can help people troubleshoot a Zoom call gives you a little bit of credibility in their book you can go to. And so just being helpful, not overly available because that's exhausting, but helpful <laughs> to <laughs> those 10 and their concentric circles around them really goes a long way. I have other stuff I could ask you about your career, but I don't really know. To me, this, this has already been really helpful. So is there anything else you think we should talk about? Any points that you felt like... I don't know, were big decision-making moments for you or things that you think people don't know about? 
Yeah. I mean, when it wasn't until a few years ago that I discovered about myself that I don't want to do mastering all day, every day. Okay. And, um, so if someone is thinking they have to pick one kind of job and just do that, that's yeah. probably not true. Mm-mm. Especially, you know, with COVID just upending most people's tours or any kind of live stuff. Like if you had that mentality, you would starve. <laughs> you have to. And so I think it's more useful to think about your career as a series, as a portfolio than a single skill set. And just like anyone diversifies in the stock market, you have stuff that's half of it is a growth stocks if you're young. And then some of it's stable stuff, just in case stuff tanks. And so if you just look at your skill sets and like, how can I build a meaningful portfolio? So there is a consistent view of my skill sets and brands because I'm not selling mattresses and then also running sound, but like, you know, system teching versus playing bass versus mastering all belongs in that same sphere. And so how can you stitch together a portfolio that makes sense from a time standpoint, from an availability standpoint, your experience, I think is a more helpful conversation than saying, I want to tour with Bono, you know, <laughs> sure. Um, let's talk about some tech stuff. So sweet. You, <laughs> you have a new site. You said you're re- rebuilding your site. Cause you're sort of like thinking about rebranding and you have this new blog that is at, where is it at? Produced by mkc.wordpress.com. I guess I'll buck up and buy a real domain sometime, but that's where it's at right now. <laughs> that's fine. I just, I was going through it and it just provided me a lot of great stuff that, that we could chat about because sure. you have a lot of little compelling titles. So I want to jump through a, a lot of those yeah. because they're just so helpful as a reminder to people who already know them and to people who don't know them, you know, this will be new. So I think a great place to start would be loudness metering. Yeah, You have a lot more experience with that than I do. <laughs> I think definitely because of being a master engineer. Sure. So a lot of us are doing a lot more like broadcasts and live streaming stuff during quarantine. Is it important for me to have a loudness meter? How do I get one? How do I connect it? What settings do I use? Everything. I love it. I love it. Here's all the cheat codes. Um, So the one that I use, and I only find it literally a week ago, I found it. So this is really new for me, but it's just the best one out there. I stitched together a couple other free plugins that would host in Reaper, and I'll talk about that in a second. But it's the Ulean loudness meter. It's a funny name, but it's spelled Y-O-U-L-E-A-N. Ulean. Yep. Okay. I'm not sure where he's from. I, he might be that. I have no idea. But that's it, the uh, American phonetic spelling of his name. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so he's going to Ulean. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, so that is so a loudness meter is tries to emulate how the human ear would react to a certain level, right? And so, but at the end of the day, for a loudness meter to work in the digital world, it has to take an incoming signal that's already digitized, and it's just a series of ones and zeros, and so it's not really loud or soft. It's like how full or empty is that digital container, right? And so it's recording the unprocessed audio, but it's listening it in a biased way to think about how would a human judge its loudness, and so a loudness meter sets a common point where like you should probably hang around this point. But if you open the, the Ulean loudness meter, you know, the great thing about standards is you have so many to choose from. And so <laughs> <laughs> I think that's like old tech programming quote or whatever. And so, so there are a ton out there. And why that is, is, you know, we've all seen Billy Mays just like wreck us after a watching football or whatever and he'll be like hi i'm billy it'd just be really loud and so 
people got mad about people basically squashing to the death out of the audio on the commercial getting really, really, really loud and being significantly louder than the program material. And so they said, then, so loudness metering, they said, how can we measure that and enforce it? So that was actually signed into law with the Calm Act. And so TV and radio, so if you pull up Yulene loudness meter and we'll get to how to set it up in a second, if you watch any, even online news broadcast, it's going to be coming in about negative 23 or negative 24 LUFS. And that's loudness units relative to full scale. So full scale audio being zero dB FS at the top. And so you can have Yulene listen at any number of these standards and each of them going to have a different bias or setting that measures the loudness in a different way and wants you to shoot for a different target. People should know that Yulene uh, loudest meter is free. Yeah, It's crazy. You only have to pay for the presets. And he lists all the presets so you can program them in yourself. So I actually paid for it yeah. so I could get the presets because yeah. all I need to do is choose iTunes when I export this podcast yes. so I can see that. But it was worth it for me. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's such an amazing product. I was happy to give him the 40, 50 bucks and just for it to, for the pro version and just the ease of being able to pop around and see exactly what you just mentioned. Uh, but yeah, but the cool thing is, is and I think it was August of last year it was the new EBU. R128 S2. Oh my God, what is that? I know. So the first, the EBU R128 was the standard that says, hey, you should be shooting for across your entire program an average level of negative 23. Again, your peaks no higher than negative two, I think. Yeah, if I'm, if I'm, but there began this huge discrepancy between broadcasted and TV elements like radio and TV versus online streaming because online streaming normal, like Spotify, if you listen to anything on Spotify, it's all going to be normalized to negative 14. So that's an almost 10 dB difference. <laughs> so, so tell me about normal and, and tell me about penalty. Cause yeah, this is what I am worried about. And I, and tell me if I should not, if I should be worried about this. So my fear, since I don't quite understand this is that if I go over the limit, Mm-hmm. then I will be penalized and my live stream or the stuff I upload to YouTube will, they'll actually turn it down. And then my client will say, why is my stuff quiet? Yeah. Is that true? It is true. Okay. It is true. And the thing is you have to think, well, why is my stuff quiet? And the question is always compared to what? Compared to what is the big question? Because even on Spotify, yeah, they have this really cool normalization algorithm in YouTube and Tidal. Everything has its own algorithm, which is all listed in Ulean. And it basically analyzes the entire file and picks more or less an average-ish. It's not quite an average, but it just assigns a single number to an entire file and says it's about negative 12. And our target's negative 14, so we're going to turn you down 2 dB. And so you can use a website called loudnesspenalty.com and upload any file, and it will process it and tell you all those numbers in advance. And I've used that a lot before. Again, me as a master engineer trying to tell this to artists when I get something to a certain level, and if they just play it outside of an environment that doesn't have normalization and they compare it to you know the new Taylor Swift stuff that's just slammed to hell, it's going to sound quiet compared to that. And even if I get my stuff to negative 16, if I'm using a lot of compression or, you know, 17 ways vocal writers in a row and nothing ever moves, <laughs> that's going to sound louder, right? And so, 17 ways vocal writers in a row. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> something like that. So, yeah. So again, loudness is always well compared to what? And so, so we have a finite digital container, 24 bits to work with. That's kind of the world everyone's running around in. And I can't or you clip, or I guess people still do all the time, even when they push stuff out. It's like, okay, 
it, and so that regulatory stuff at NEC 23 is supposed to just to keep everyone on a somewhat level playing field. I don't know who calls you or penalizes you or who enforces <laughs> that, but in on the internet, uh, aka not television or radio, uh, there's no police. If I were just broadcast to go into bo- Boxcast or whatever streaming service, Resi, whatever, and each platform in and of itself, when it's going live, I actually don't know if they inf- they will adjust your volume on the fly. I don't think they do. And so the new S2 standards, so the EBU R28S2 has a dialogue setting, which it's implicit, it's meant for dialogue, and it has an S2 music. So And so when you deliver stems, let's say if you're mixing a show for Netflix, this is also, and this is why the system's broken, they want you to be at a certain number as well. But if you have a show that's primarily drama, it's a bunch of talking, and then there's a big crazy chase scene that's all loud, right? Because a... If you're watching a movie, uh, that's delivered at neg 31. And you have 31 dB of dynamic range for a movie because they want a gunshot to feel like a gunshot, right? But that's smaller now with Netflix. But what they they call is the anchor element. So if it's primarily speech, that should be at negative 24. But if you have then, it's also a disco band playing at the end for the credit or whatever, and it's like louder, that's okay. And so, but that's the problem with assigning a single number to an entire piece, like an episode of a TV show or a podcast or whatever, it's not mm-hmm. everything is supposed to be felt at that same volume. And so it's, it's just like, how do you tell an algorithm to listen? Like, okay, this is a music portion. Should I touch it? But I paid an audio mixer to mix it like this. And okay. so it just gets hard. Well, so let's talk about how we can kind of just respect industry standards yes. with our live streams. Okay, love it. Thank you for <laughs> taking me out of that rabbit, rabbit hole. Okay, so I would say if you are mixing a primarily dialogue-based show, I would use the e, uh, EBU R128S2, and that's negative 18, So, uh, which is great because most consoles, that's your incoming nice reference level for equivalent of zero VU. Again, that's not gonna, if I pass a sign tone at 1K at neg 18 over to the loudness meter, it's not going to be the same. If I do it at 100 hertz versus 1K versus 10K, they're all going to be different because it's listening at different frequencies to emulate the human ear. And so basically you won't know for sure how it's going to go until you actually play into the meter. Okay. Yeah. So you can't do a single test tone to do that. But yeah, so the dialogue. And so that should be plenty of loudness where someone on their iPhone is having to crank it up all the way to, and put it up to the ear to hear it. But it's not going to be so little headroom where you're hitting a compressor or limiter all the time. So I think it's a great choice that they went with negative 18. And then negative 16 if it is a primarily music-based live stream. Um, and so just a couple of dB more. I'm not sure if the algorithm listens differently or if it just, hey, you get 2 dB more because that's closer to Spotify. Okay. Because if someone listens to Spotify at neg 14 down to neg 18, it's 4 dB. That's a lot. It's a big discrepancy. And so I think they're trying to get in between what was at broadcast at neg 23 and neg 24 if, in, if you're in America up to closer to these common levels people are used to listening at at negative 14 for Spotify. Okay, so that's the setting that I use in my loudness meter. So how can I get this set up then in a live setting so that I have my loudness meter going? And so I know, for example, since I have the Union loudness meter, and any people could use whatever loudness meter they want, but in this case, we're just using that as an example, it has a standalone version. So I can just start that up on my computer and then can you walk me through how you set up getting audio in and out of the computer to do the monitoring? I love it. So it's a little counterintuitive that if you just, oh, I thought I could just open up Spotify, hit play, and it'll start metering my computer's output, but it's actually looking for an input to meter. And so on 
you know, I'm on the X32 or CL5 all the time. And so depending on whatever protocol you need to have your program or stream stereo mix piped out digitally out of the console into your computer. And so if you're on the X32, you can just use the USB card and go in and it within your computer, choose it as your audio driver, and then just make sure you're sending it into the card input one and two, because it's going to be looking for that one. I'm not sure within Uline you can have it look for a different stream or not on three or four or five or six or whatever, but I know one and two, it works. And so just go on the routing tab, cards at one and two, patch it over, and it, you'll be seeing it on the loudness meter right away. Cool. Yeah. And then in other situations... I guess you just need some other protocol to get digital audio from the console exactly. to the computer. Okay. Yeah, whether that's Dante Virtual Sound Card or SoundGrid or whatever, you could pipe anything in. Just some sort of digital. And why? And I need to say it needs to be specifically digital because if you run it analog out of the console, you now are piping something out in accordance with that con- that reference level for that console. And then whatever piece of gear you're using to get it back to digital into your computer has its own internal reference level. And so it's no longer accurate anymore. So it has to be a digital copy. Okay. Michael, how do I identify a floor bounce and avoid trying to EQ it? Yay. The nice thing about floor bounces is that they follow a pattern. Well, I guess floor bounces look like comb filters and those follow a pattern. Okay. And what pattern is that? Uh, A pattern. Wait, what's a comb filter? A comb filter. I love it. Great. What's a comb? What's a filter? (laughs) Who are you? C, the letter O. Uh, So a comb filter is when two correlated or same sources arrive at a single point and are measured together, but they're offset by time. And so when they combine at the same place, they have destruct, or I guess both constructive and destructive interference. <laughs> and so they will basically make this regular pattern of peaks and valleys looking like a comb. It's a weird looking comb. Yes. Why does it seem to change size of bristle of the comb as it gets higher in frequency? Yes, because most of our audio analyzers are displaying a linear phenomenon over a log graph. Yeah. That's a weird looking comp. It's a so very- if I look at it on a linear graph, it'll look like a radio. Yes, exactly. Yes. All right. Yes. Okay. So, so I kind of, so step one is I identify this comb filter by just learning what that pattern looks like. Yes. And so then you're saying from that, then I can find the floor bounce. Yes. And so there are, you can either look at what would be your magnitude response and look there and look at those regular patterns. Or I usually how I try to look for it first, if I, it's specific, I guess, that's why I wanted to separate comb filter from floor bounce is that you can get comb filters from not just the floor, <laughs> from just like delays and digital processing or whatever. And so just it, it, and, uh, so floor bounce usually means I can look at my impulse response. If you're in smart, that's the top thing. And you'll see a spike where your delay calculator is latched onto and said, yes, this is my reference signal. And you see another smaller spike after it. And that means there is a, it's another signal is coming in and it's being included in your measurement. And so a floor bounce means that, let's say I have a PA in the air, flown PA, which is usually it's gonna be more exaggerated, is you'll see it so the audio PA is hitting your measurement microphone and it's also hitting the floor and bouncing back up into the microphone. And so if you take, depending if you're doing like a seated audience or standing audience, I guess a particular blog post where I wrote about it, it was 3.82 milliseconds sure. was the offset and delay. So this is what you saw in your live IR window, mm-hmm. you saw a spike at the center of the screen, Time zero, yeah. and then there was another spike later at yeah. 3.8485 milliseconds yes. later. Okay. Yes. And so I was like, okay, there's the, so impulse response is supposed to tell you what would a theoretically perfect 
spike of all frequencies for one sample look like if it passed through my system. And so if my system is perfect, it will the output will perfectly reflect the input, but it doesn't since it's passing through a speaker and all these things that alter it. And so seeing two spikes means, wait, I only give you one. <laughs> Why am I getting, del I mean, this is a great for in the stock market, but I want only want one out <laughs> if I give you one in. And so I, I just put my cursor over that and told me it's 3.85. And then I put that 3.85 number in a little handy spreadsheet I made that tells me. I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay, yeah. so recently you published this spreadsheet called Audio Math Survival Spreadsheet. So yes. let me just give a quick intro to this. Yeah. Because... I think this is funny. So I think all of us, when we have read Bob McCarthy's book for the first time, we've gotten about halfway through and we thought, you know what? I wish someone would make an Excel spreadsheet that had all of the math that he talks about in the book. And that's what you've done. Most so of it, as yes. you were reading the book, you took all the things that you were learning and all of the math that he talks about and little equations and calculations and conversions yeah. And you put that all onto one page. So, yeah. and it's not even really that overwhelming. Well, let's see, how many rows is it? So 168 rows. And yeah. the, so there are probably like 20 little calculators in here. And yeah. it starts off with things as simple as converting frequency to cycle time to wavelength. Yeah. And then um, vice versa, samples to frequency, phase delay to time and frequency, voltage change. So a lot of really helpful things here. And you can download that where? Probably the easiest place is going to my blog and there's a blog post that has the link. Um, okay. So we'll I, just have to put that along with this. Yeah, yeah. You can just post the link in the show notes or okay. whatever. It's just a Google sheet that is a public link. So copy it, share it, do whatever you want. Cool. Yeah. Put my name on it. Yeah. Take credit for your work. Sure. <laughs> Okay, so sure. there is a section you added called comb filter, right? Yeah, yeah, row, okay. so row 49. Yeah, and so it's the, the spreadsheet has inputs are orange, outputs are blue. And so if you see a blue cell, you can put in a number. So the comb filter says time offset. And so I put in 3.85 milliseconds because I looked at my impulse response and so I got another spike right there. And I have some math set up on dip one, dip two, dip three, and then peak one, peak two, peak three. There are more deeps, <laughs> deeps and picks, <laughs> dips and peaks after that, but the, the first three are usually the most strong. And the math, when you figure out your first dip, takes your, basically, if, if 3.85 does perfectly correspond with a specific frequency to complete a full cycle. And so if I put that, that is 259.74 hertz. Uh, and so if I take that and to get my first dip, that means it is arriving one half of a wavelength differently. So that's 130 hertz. And so that's going to be my first dip is half of that frequency. And so that's just the math there. And then to get dip two, dip three, you just add that full wavelength frequency again and again. So that's the linear phenomenon. And then if you want to go to peak, that the first peak is like, well, if a signal arrives exactly one half wavelength or one full wavelength away and adds again, you're going to get, if it's the same level, you're going to get 6 dB increase. So you don't get quite six, but it's right there at 260. And then peak two, it's multiplied by two and then by three. And so just adding and adding. So those right away. And so then I can go confirm at my magnitude response and see those three dips or three peaks. And if they're there, then that looks like a comb filter to me. Okay. So it sounds like a comb filter is a pattern of cancellation and summation. Yep. So it's going like 
valley, peak, valley, peak, valley, peak, valley, peak, valley, peak, valley, forever and ever. And, and so if I can correlate this pattern that I'm seeing in the live IR where I see, oh, there's a, there's a, some kind of a reflection or echo yeah. or something there. I yeah. see a second peak. If I can correlate that to the comb filter, then you're saying I put those two together and I know floor bounce. Yes. And then if I'm looking at my magnitude response, that might have this big, you know, in this case, I saw a big peak at 260, which is like, you know, most people, you know, I hate to pick on a specific frequency, but like a big buildup in 250 just sounds just kind of throaty and nasty sounding and just sounds cheap to me. And so if I see this big peak, well, it's like, well, if I stand closer to the BA or farther than the BA, that's going to change. And so I can't make a single EQ move across this rig to solve for that. This is a timing problem solving with electronic means, which isn't going to get you anything. And so you could, of course, try like window out stuff and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, it's there are other reasons I wouldn't choose to do that. But basically any sort of mess I'm seeing in that pattern, I basically ignore it. Michael, how do you remember the speed of sound? So at the high school I went to, there are two times you need to remember is when is lunch and when do we get out of here? And lunch was at 1130 and I got out of school at 345. So 1130 is close, went at normal 70.91 degrees. That's why I have that as the starting temperature on my, for all my calculations in the graph is 70.91 degrees, gives you 1130 feet per second. And then since a lot of people want to know stuff in meters too, that's helpful to remember that's about 330 meters per second. That's great. Yeah. Did I tell you mine? Yes, I, I updated my blog post and added it. Oh, really? Okay. I did. <laughs> I don't know why, but when I am trying to remember numbers, I often try to look at how they're related and uh -huh. add and subtract them. I love it. So when I was trying to remember my, I just moved a few months ago and I was trying to remember my address that way, my new address. And so for, for me, I was finally able to remember the speed of sound because 11 minus two equals nine. So I remember 1129. For some reason, that works well with my brain. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. And 345 is helpful for me, for meters. Oh, okay, great. Okay. And then once you have that, I've found that once you have one number memorized, it's easy to remember all the others. So yes. now that I have 1129 memorized, I, yes. I can remember 1130 really easily. Like yes. most people use 1130. Sure. I remember 1129. Oh yeah, yeah most people. So now, now it's just all easier. And of course, I referred to my own calculation wrong. I said 330 earlier. It is 345. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, here's how easy it is to remember the speed of sound. I remembered it wrong. <laughs> Humbling. Okay. Tell me about, you published this article. One of your very first ones was called How I Screwed Up Deploying a $200,000 Sound System. So tell me about that. Yes. This was the commencement ceremonies for the University of Arkansas. And so mm. they, so it's four days of graduations. So <laughs> is, is it just day long just calling out names handing out yes. diplomas wow yeah because i mean the university of arkansas i think has fifty thousand students and both graduate students undergrad whatever and so like the school of business would have two the school of agriculture would have one and art and science would have one and so all these different schools would have their own ceremony they all have a little bit different some of them have specific walk-in playlists someone would bring in bands to play while people were walking in so it wasn't just a podium the entire time there was every ceremony had a little something fun that was different so i got the mixing bands on the floor of an arena off to the side where the pa was pointed at the floor for the students so that was kind of interesting anyway so uh, i wasn't in charge of placement and but the band couldn't be on the stage because that's where all the faculty was sitting so they were kind of off to the side and getting the pa back at them and whatever so anyway 
So I was A1 on that. And so I had to deploy a system for the floor to cover the entirety of the basketball floor. And we're in, we're in Bud Walton Arena where the Hogs play basketball. It's a 19,000 seat arena. And so I have a PA that covers the entirety of the floor, primarily for the students to sit, but there's all this ADA seating around the edges and stuff too. So I have to get that. So everything except the stage. Then also pipe my feet up to the flown rig that covers the entire bowl plus delays and all that. Okay. So how I screwed it up is it was, I had L Acoustics Cara, Cara, whatever you say it. And we had two hangs of 12 boxes, which now doing this show for the fourth time now, I've managed to deploy it right. But the first time I deployed it wrong, what I did is I used gain shading to accomplish all the distance offsets between like the top box throw and the bottom box throw. So it was a big Naughty, thing. naughty. I know. Oh, you're man, right. And L Acoustics does not like that. They don't. They don't. You're probably blacklisted now. I know. We should not be talking about this. We're going to ruin <laughs> your career. <laughs> it probably will. Scott Sugden's going be like, that guy. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I was actually in the middle of Bob's book while I did this. And so, but up until having getting to fly a lot of bigger arrays, I had either done just like K-12, single kind of point source kind of stuff, or constant curvature arrays like VRX. And even at that point, gain shading isn't always the best thing to do for constant curvature array. But up to my knowledge in that point, how you got over that gain offset was just like, well, it's loud in the front, turn the bottom box sure, down. Sure, you have limited, limited resources, limited yeah. tools to get that. Yep. Sure. I was like, okay, cool. I'll do that. And, and so I just overlaid that logic, even on a line array, not really taking into account the I guess how Bob says it, the group think of letting the boxes couple together and throw and do all that. And so I, even though I had already read those portions and done stuff, I just, that way of treating an array of speakers was just so ingrained in me that I overlaid it on top of this really nice car rig. The graduations happened, no one got mad. They weren't like this giant low, but 200s got like, no one like threw their diploma at me. But it's just really, it was really, really humbling after I actually sent my system design to you, Nathan, and you tore apart on the internet. And it <laughs> you, was said, all... you, you used the word tore it apart like I've made fun of you. But... <laughs> no, you didn't. You were, you were very gracious and very generous to do that. And that, you know, kicked off our relationship, and which was awesome. And so, but it was just so cool to see, oh man, I just... It was just very few moments in your career like, I have been thinking about this entirely wrong. And you got to illuminate that for me. So thank you for that. And since then, I was like, I just made me double down even more of like, well, I really need to know my stuff. If I'm going to be put in charge of this really expensive rig and be in charge of people having a good experience, being able to be not only personable and all the soft skills involved with audio, of just really knowing the math behind it and why I need to do certain things just became that even that much more important. So since that time ago, just really have chosen to invest in that and get better at it. And hopefully it's, it's paying off. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm, I'm just so happy that you had the chance to do that gig multiple times. Cause there's so yeah. many times when other people have done things, I'm sure. And, and when I've done things where you realize later, even years later that you made some mistake and you don't get the chance to like try it again and do it again and really learn from it. But this really cements the learning when you're like, oh, I made a mistake and I can fix it next time. Yes. That's great. Yeah, you're right. That's very rare. And, you know, I think the company who has the contract has it for the next five years. And as long as I live in Arkansas, I might have that show. So I might get to try it a lot yeah, of different keep approaches. Perfecting it. That's cool. <laughs> so we talked about one mistake. Let's yeah. talk about more. <laughs> Great. Keep it coming, man. Can you think of something else? Is there a moment that comes to mind when I say biggest mistake that you've ever made? Is there, is there one moment that was especially painful that you can share with us? Yes, I was. It was actually here in D.C. 
five years ago, something like that, I was mixing for the Women's Economic Empowerment Summit. And so it was at the top of the museum. So it's this kind of museum about news. And that was the venue. It was really cool. It's this all around glass, super high profile event, had the CEO of Coke, CEO of Walmart. So in like a corporate sense of like a lot of big players in the room, it was a couple of days long and we were in the literally the last session and the CEO of Walmart, Doug McMillan, is giving his like ending thing. I was mixing it and was in charge of deploying RF as well. I didn't have an A2, so I was all under my purview. So it's a smaller room, probably like 100, 100 seats, something like that. It was real long. So I'm down at the end of the room off to one side because egress was at the back and we had RF there. And I was setting up just normal, sure, ULXD stuff, but it was eight, uh, I think it was 24 channels. And so we had an RF distributor, a distro. And all of a sudden, Doug is talking. He's probably 10 minutes left on the time clock. Like we're on home stretch and he's on a LAV, a ULXD 2, 1, I forget, and gone. Just gone. Oh, no. And this is being broadcast back to the Walmart home office. This is here in the room. And luckily, no, I did have an A2, but I deployed the RF. And luckily, my A2 hops up, has a handheld in his pocket, no less than three seconds later, hands it to him. But without that safety net, if I'm being really quick and being able to get the handheld up there, and of course, it's not fun for it. It just rattles you when you're talking. All of a sudden, your mics goes out. So just him just being kind of like, oh, whoa, this is this. And he rolled with it. He's a super nice guy. But it was just like really high pressure thing. I'm like, I'm the CEO of the largest company in the world. And so come to find out, I went back through my rig, tried to figure out what's wrong. Did I get stepped on due to whatever? And I, out of that, the, I was using the single rack unit ULXD ones that were put together. And so they had the A and B antennas and I forgot to plug in that specific unit into the distro. <laughs> so it had no antenna connected. No antenna. <laughs> no antenna. So it's a, it was a miracle. It was working from the get go because zero antenna. And so how it made it that long, I don't know. But all the other ones were in. But for whatever reason, that unit and that mic he got, because he was at the end of the day, so he was farther down the list. So sure. RF8. Wow, that's really interesting. So obviously you learn to always double check your antenna connections. But mm-hmm. what about other RF? Is there an RF setup procedure or verification step that would have uh, identified that problem? Mm. Yeah, I mean, just... Make sure your cables are plugged. I now do that. Like, it, especially like usually when doors start or whatever, I'll like walk my entire front of house or set up and literally like look and verify each cable. And so I do that now because of that situation. And so it seems, you know, we think we're all professionals here, but that stuff happens. And then secondly, having some sort of testing procedure if that's having walking out with each microphone and then having wireless workbench logging the activity and you know because at that point my the test that was for success for me is like could i hear it so at the beginning of the day i had my a2 walk up like i heard it i heard it i heard it rattle through all the microphones they're about to walk in get off the stage whatever but actually seeing data from wireless workbench saying this was the quality of the connection he just happened to be up there when it was working and there could have been a broadcast truck that pulled up outside that might have been close to where I was at. It just kind of drowned it. Who knows? But I think just just like having loudness metering is such a good tool to be able to see what's going on with the loudness standpoint. If you're having RF, I mean, it's a free software. And if you're using sure stuff, just being able to see like, can I trust this microphone that's about to be brought up for the you know CEO of the largest company in the world? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm the same as you. I think three or four, a few more, maybe four or five years ago, I was the only test I had was turn it on and see if it works. And now 
And because of going through some painful moments, just yeah. like you did too, Yeah, I don't know why I didn't know about it before, but now, well, I took Stephen Pavlik's course, yes. which is called Real World RF Troubleshooting. And so now I just know I should do a link budget before every show. Yep. And then once everything is deployed, I now always do wargaming and a walk test. Yes. And yes. those have really helped me feel more confident about my setup so that when something's going wrong, yes, I have a better idea of like where it could possibly be going wrong. And I can also just like, you know, deliver more confidence to my client and say, hey, I did these tests, you know, aside from any like crazy circumstances, this, this is the result we're going to get. Sure. I love it. I love it. So, so let's say a couple things about why we're here in DC and then maybe we'll come back and record in a week and sure. talk about what really happened. Yeah. So let's just talk about the system because I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of new stuff for us because yeah. I think we can say stuff about numbers and how software and hardware works, but most people are going to forget all that stuff. Probably the most helpful stuff we can say is how you and I learn things. So we've kind of found out at the last minute that we would both be using console and communications and speakers and maybe in my case, even microphones that we'd never used before. So now for me, after having worked in pro audio for 17 years, that stuff still happens all the time. I know, yeah. <laughs> Probably more so for me because I only work one or two shows a month. And so I'm not getting my hands on gear all the time, especially new stuff, but I'm not afraid of it. Like now it's fun. It yeah, used to oh, yeah. be really scary, but now it's fun. Yeah. And so maybe let's just talk about like how we approach that a little bit. And so let me just kick it off. Like you found out that you were going to be using the LV1 for the first time. And so what was sort of some of the first things you did to prepare so that if you just had to walk up to it and like start using it, you would, you know, be a little bit more familiar. Sure. I think... YouTube's a gold mine. <laughs> also a black hole, but just being able to see like, okay, who is intelligent? I mean, obviously Waves, the makers of it. We found out today with someone that there's actually a whole course on it. I didn't know about that course, but there was just a 30 minute walkthrough when that product was announced. But through that, that Sweetwater did of like the Waves guy who just like walked through it and just 30 minutes of like, here's how to poke around on it. Here's what I can do. And just little things he dropped. He's like, oh yeah, since it's layer two, blah, 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 blah. It's like, oh, layer two networking tells me a lot about it. Versus like, okay, I'm not having to think about IP addresses, all that stuff. It, it, it's kind of plug and play. It's Mac address. So like those little nuggets of people talking about it, it feels offhanded to them, but that's just really useful information. It's kind of in between each of their points. And so listening for those, so there were several offhanded things he said in just that little 30 minute YouTube video. I was like, ah, that's helpful. So just watching what's already out there. <laughs> so you went to YouTube and, and what's surprising me I'm realizing now is that I this is one of the first times that I didn't read the user's manual. Okay. Yeah. I think that I always go to that first, but this time since Waves has their own online course where there's like 30 videos, I was just like, I'll just go through those. And sure. like today we have an off day. And so I was like, I went through a bunch of them, you know, before, and then we had a meeting with the, uh -huh. the system provider yep. and he answered a bunch of our questions. Yeah. And now I'm like light years ahead of where I was yes. days ago, you know? <laughs> having never touched it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if I have much else to say about that. I did go through, so also using the galaxy in real life before I, I used Galileo's in real life, but I've only ever used galaxies, virtual galaxies, you know, in, in map 3d and map XT sure. and compass. So I did, I, I watched a few of their videos and it's, it's just so nice now 
a year ago we didn't have these, but now since everybody's been doing more videos because of quarantine, yeah. now there are several videos about Galileo and Compass and Galaxy on YouTube. So that was great. I went through those yeah. and Merlin Van Veen explained all the things I need to know. And that was the man. What's yeah. his name? Barrientos. We ended up not using that, but did you, <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't get to use them. Uh, but, but yeah, I guess I also went to YouTube to train for that, but I did look at the user's manual for that. Yeah. And then, I don't know, what else do you want to say? I looked at some stuff about AVB, but I wasn't even really sure how much I would need to know. Sure. Did you try to learn anything about AVB before we got here? Not AVB specifically, since I knew that wasn't going to be like the primary protocol, since SoundGrid is going to be handling more of that. But to me, I had never done many shows that used a lot of fiber. So I didn't know, like, do I need to think about fiber differently than regular old 300 foot Ethernet or whatever? So that's where, as far as the, a very specific niche research I did was on that. It's like, can, you know, there's single mode fiber, multi mode fiber, and see whatever. So all that. So that was a little overwhelming for me. And but, did you just do that research like on product pages? So you just looked up switches and then read about how they connect with fiber? So I did find. Later, in like the middle of our conversations, like I, well, actually, you first time when I was designing the original, original rig, there was kind of a transfer of power in the middle of this. When I was designing it, I had expected Dante system, and it was a bunch of Rio racks all connected with fiber. I was specking it, never having used it, but I needed, I needed to go longer than 328 feet, and so it needed to be fiber, so I knew that. But uh, you referred me over to Chris Leonard, who was super, super nice, and I just asked him, since knowing he works with that all the time, Chris uh, Leonard at IMS Technology Services. Yes, yeah, he was awesome, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> and he was like, yeah, it's just it's a different connection type, and it's glass, so don't step on it. But <laughs> but otherwise, you can treat it just like an Ethernet cable. Uh, sometimes knowing the nitty gritty of stuff is really helpful, just like with system design. But in that specific case, learning something new, working with a new technology, just having something. Oh yeah, yeah, you know Dante, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it's not that scary. Just connect it. And it's like, cool. <laughs> so that was helpful. I guess the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I always want to know how the crossover alignment is going to be done. And that's been an interest of mine for the last couple of years. And, and I have learned that if I prepare for that ahead of time and find out what the pre-alignment delay values are, yeah. then when I get into the field, everything's going to be easier. Like it's just more research, you know, the more, you know, the easier things will go in the field. So I also looked at how Lena and 900 LFC go together. Cause initially we thought we were going to have to align those. And I also looked at how maybe X40 and 900 LFC would go together, speakers from Meyer Sound. And luckily, I already had some of those pairs in, in Subaligner, my yeah. little web app. Yeah. And so I was just able to look those up and do some quick, quick research, but then I also verified it in Map3D. Yes. Just to make sure. And I never used the C20 before, so I went through and, and read those operating instructions. Yeah, so I guess let's let's do another short recording in a couple of weeks about how this all actually yeah, turned out. Yeah, that'll be fun to talk to. <laughs> yeah, so let's start this thing. So, Michael, welcome back. Glad to be here, Nathan. So, in for people listening with us who are here with us, that happened in no time. But you and I talked, and then we worked on a show for four or five days, and now we're both back home. Yep. And I was just making fun of you because you run a professional mastering, so-called professional mastering uh -huh. studio. Can't see my air quotes. And you do that all with a $60 app. Yeah. 
And I'm sure you have some other paid plugins and stuff, but sure, um, sure. what is it about Reaper that attracts you? And I'm asking for myself because I've seen other people using it in education and, and I was looking for just kind of a plugin host for doing some like educational mm-hmm. videos so I can like run my signal generator out of smart and then yeah. run it back internally, loop back. And, and you were like, hey, you should run it. I'm like, what are you talking about Reaper? So I guess I'll finally have to look at it. So sorry, yeah. back to making fun of you. Great. Um, what's so great about Reaper? Reaper, from a utilitarian standpoint, it can host VSTs as well as audio units. So Logic, you're just stuck with audio units. And, you know, Cubase, you're just stuck with VSTs. Ableton can do both. Pro Tools is just AAX. And there's a couple of plugins that are just AAX, which can't do in there, but you can work with video in it. And so I use Reason for, like, you know, making fat beats in my basement and, uh, <laughs> uh, like, professional soundtrack work. And I can't, I use Rewire and I rewire it into Reaper so I can see a video of him composing that into it. So it accepts Rewire. It's a really small software size. It doesn't take up a lot of disk space and it runs really efficiently. Uh, the only thing that ever crashes it are other plugins that don't work. I've never had it with a, f- a really stable plugin selection or by itself crash on me. It can run on Linux, Windows, or Apple. They're doing some beta tests with the new M1 chip, so it's going to be supported there soon. As a really, really powerful, this is probably one of my favorite features, is the region render matrix. Yeah, so so talk more about this because you told me that you actually use this on this this show that we we just got done working on the processional for the inauguration yeah. of Joe Biden, and you had to work on a bunch of voiceover clips, right? Yes. So the the guy who's been announcing it since Truman, who's an assisted, <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. He's ninety six, was in an assisted living situation because of COVID. They couldn't record him professionally, so they sent in a little kit. He's spoken to this cheap microphone, got it back, and they traded up a bunch of clips, and I got him. They said, "Here, here they all are." They're they had a, like a lettering system up this point in the parade. Play is like play clip A one, play B four, whatever, and it would line up with a specific part of the parade announcing what was happening. So there was probably about twenty of these clips, and I'm sitting here with the show caller and they want to listen back to him and they're saying hey some of these are really long we need to trim them up and so if i were to load this up in another daw it would maybe put all 20 clips i could put them on different tracks but i would then have to figure out how to name each individual track by the file name which there could be a macro for that in other softwares but there's i could easily do that in reaper with the pre-built action but i took it one step further instead of just naming the track but each one having to bounce out each individual track because i also had to do some processing on them to kind of remove some of the room sound level out some of the discrepancy in the levels between takes all that yeah i should interrupt you and say these did not sound good no as soon as you started playing them everyone in the trailer was like, what? Yes. Like, number one, this guy sounds very old. And number two, so it was all, it was mostly for historical reasons, right? I guess. Yes. And number two, yeah, the quality was pretty bad. So, so you had your work cut out for you. Yes. So I had, yeah, five audio engineers staring over my shoulder as I was supposed to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know and, yeah we're all like how's michael gonna handle this yeah yeah it was pretty great but i have to say perfect job i don't know whoever i don't know if you got put on that job because people know that you work as a mastering engineer but also i should point out 
you did not have a glasses-friendly mask with you. And so I was so happy that you ended up spending some time in the trailer where you could actually see things. No joke. Yeah, outside, it got so fucked up. I could not see anything. Okay, so yeah, so I was able to take them and I found this action. And in Reaper, you can do things called actions where you press one button and it, it's basically like a macro, just runs a bunch of different things. And you can program them yourself. You can borrow actions from other people. But I had every clip, say 20 of them all lined up on 20 separate clips all at the beginning of the timeline. So if you hit play, you would hear all of them at the same time. And so I just have a clip. You just click click on track one and hit run on this macro. It would select the length of the item. It would make a region, basically like a little marker that went across the entire length of it, name it, the, the item name up the region, and then push the other one over to the end of it. So they're all right in a row. And I just click that button 20 times, and in less than 20 seconds, they're all named. They have the region selected, and, and they all are at a different part in the timeline, so I could just hit play and, and go through all of them. And then that way, I just put my, since it was just all the clips were the same level, the same room, the same guy, I just did all my processing on the master bus. And then when I hit render, I just selected the region render matrix, and everything, every single item was processed through my master bus and then it inherited all the qualities of the region with the original file name. And then each iteration now just do like underscore V1, underscore V2, and then just select the ones that needed to render out. And so all this manual work, I think Reaper really excels of removing the stuff that's just boring and just like an administrative assistant type stuff and makes that with the click of a button easy to do. Cool. So that's Reaper. So, but originally you and I wanted to talk today about some of the things that we learned. Yeah. Working on the show. So let's just take turns. So I'm learning that you can use Reaper to do this stuff quickly. As you're talking, I'm also imagining how I would do it in Logic because sure. that's what I'm more familiar with. So yeah, I learned some stuff about Reaper. Another major thing I learned is just some things related to the cold. So three things related to the cold. Number one, I'm so glad I brought contacts. We were just talking about how we did not have masks that worked well with glasses, but we saw lots of people having that problem. Yes. Anyone with glasses, even like our boss was like trying to walk around and see <laughs> stuff and he couldn't see stuff, right? And it was yeah. like, oh, glasses, masks, so tough. Number two was cold clothes. I was so cold the entire time. And I was embarrassed about that because I live in Minneapolis, very cold, but I realized I never just stand outside. Yeah. So I don't really know how to dress for standing still. And there were these times when we were just sort of standing by, I was just standing in front of the LV1, like waiting for someone to tell me to do something. And after like an hour or two hours of that, like shit, you get real cold. Um, and number three, the stylus. So glad I just happened to have a stylus because otherwise there's no way I would have survived working outside on a touchscreen for that long. My hands would have frozen off and I would have died. Most definitely. And even just the responsiveness of the touchscreen in the cold even with your hands, became less. Oh, sure. And so just, and that's another thing that one of the other A1s, the other Nathan L in the trailer mm -hmm. with me was saying is that he, on other shows, when they're outside with the LV1, the particular touchscreens they had on their Lenovo screens, I'm not sure if this is true across all touchscreens, but it, he had to tap a couple of times and was cold to get stuff, even if his hands were warm. I don't know if you've seen these, but just to make you and other people aware of them, next time what I'm going to bring, my wife has this nice stylus that she gave me that has tips, different size tips that you can change. And oh. so, yeah, so so that would have been good because the, the tip I had was actually kind of fat. <clears throat> so yeah, that's a good thing to have for next time. All right, do you want to go next? Sure. 
I hadn't worked with much audio over IP stuff that was layer two. And so SoundGrid was cool to know that like, wait, it just, all it does is look at the MAC address and away you go. And I'm so used to a Dante world. I guess that's the audio over, uh, over IP protocol I use the most. And so you have to worry yeah, about too. IP addresses, sure. which is cool. And like, it, you know, it's powerful and flexible to be able to do that. But I like that simplicity of just, you can see. Yeah, it. that that was going to be one of my learnings as well. You know, I, before arriving on site, I was kind of nervous, like, am I going to be able to get my computer on the network so I can use that as a source and a receiver so I can run smart and in case I need to run QLab or anything. Sure. Because I didn't bring my audio interface with me. I don't have a small mobile audio interface. I mean, I have one that's pretty small, but it's still not small enough to like sure. fit in the bag <laughs> yeah. with everything else to Throwing really make it comfortable. But yeah, we we showed up, we plugged it in, and, and it just worked. Yeah. You know, it is because we both had LV1 demos installed on our machines. Yep. And then, yeah, uh, they showed up as sources in the LV1 almost immediately. Sure. It was it was fun to have to learn a new console again. I haven't been in a show situation, especially I live in a smaller region, and the stuff that I travel for, it's usually with the same company, and so I know the gear. It's probably going to be something Yamaha or something X32 or M32. And so I could out my own, go you sign up to learn the Allen & Heath stuff or whatever, you know, the DLive just for fun, because that might be going in in a venue soon in the area about like, hey, you're going to be on this console and you need to learn it. And so I would just further remind it that the fundamentals of audio are always going to be the fundamentals. Like it's routing and gain structures, 80% of the job. And so just really leaning onto, really leaning into like, how does that function just in this new environment help me navigate it? Even when I was kind of confused of like, where is that menu or where is the other stuff? Yeah, I agree. And, and another thing I learned when it comes to routing and just how it works in this environment is the way we handled the backups. So Oh yeah. I talk about that. I, I haven't worked on enough sort of like multi-source, multi-front of house networks to say what's normal and how other people do this. But how we handled it on this site is that we had kind of three front of house locations and we wanted they wanted us to set up a layer so that each front of house location was a backup for another one. So my zone one front of house location was the backup for zone two. So that if, not if they lost power, because then we would lose our network connection, but if their computer crashed or something, the, actually they're all, so I'm trying to think of what would go wrong so that, and I don't know, so I can't come up with a situation because I don't know the LV1 enough, but something, sure. if something went wrong and their LV1 went down, yeah, so here's the, here's the situation. Maybe this, like if their computer crashed and they could no longer or for a, a short amount of time, like monitor their and have control over their mixer, I would still have access to its inputs. So I set up a custom layer and I got all the mics from zone two and I was just ready with those in case I needed to all of a sudden start controlling the feed to their outputs or to their press feed and stuff like that. And so did you have those input, you sourced those inputs to a custom layer and did you just have them fed to like a separate matrix and that, that fed patched directly to their IOs outs? So the only thing I th didn't do was patch anything at the very end. Okay, got it. And I don't know a better way to do this, but yeah, that's that that was actually the question I asked them. I was like, hey, so where where do I patch this? And they said, don't patch anything yet because then you'll take over. 
Oh, okay. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah. output patch. So for me to use the exact same physical output, I had to wait. So if they went down, then I could patch it and I would take over, you know, and then they Got would have it. to take over from me again later. Okay, cool. So, so it's just a couple of taps with your handy dandy stylus and away you right. go. <laughs> it would, it, I mean, we would have a loss of audio for sure. It would sure. take me a few seconds to get that together. Yeah. But I mean, being up and running in two seconds is a lot better, especially if it's like in between VOs, like no one would know, you know? Yeah, hopefully. And, and my understanding is that if your LV one computer stops working, the whole thing keeps passing audio and the last hit you left it until you get it back up and running. So yeah, maybe, maybe there would be no loss of, or no one would notice. Sure. That's backups. Uh, do you have another one? I was, uh, getting to see, work with a more, even though we didn't really take full advantage of it, we had the galaxy, which was cool. And most shows I've been a part of when using a DSP, it's usually just send left, right, fill front fill and sub and then it goes to that system and maybe some delays but since this was a more distributed system and just seeing how the galileo wants to matrix stuff out and just how flexible that was that was pretty cool one thing i would i wanted to ask about zone three the specific a1 chose to route things was to and i'm not trying to throw one under the bus it was just there's probably some intentionality to us but it was just a single output feeding the galileo and then the galileo took care of mutes and and gain shading for all of these five different zones he was responsible for so speakers on to the east side of the road of the press stand to the west side then three different floors of press and you know knowing that there were going to be people listening and most likely asking for changes i was like oh that's really cool that the galileo can handle all that and just have five different outputs and shading but if that's not if compass isn't right up next to you and you're not able to control that from you as an operator on the fly i'd rather thought like maybe if you had the real estate should you use your one of eight stereo matrices on the desk to control that rather than the galileo so because we weren't able to be super responsive when those requests did come inevitably of like oh hey they're walking past this part the press on the top floor are mad because it's too loud or there's this section where the family is sitting and they want to hear it louder that it wasn't such a snappy response as just go to that page or custom layer and bring it up it was like okay we have to the other computers running compass drag the mouse okay and it was actually a separate person had to do that because in case there was another operator having to do something on the fly so yeah that's an interesting question for the system planning do you break break out those outputs at the console do you break them out on your output processing and then how fast are you going to be able to get to those and make changes yeah so again, there may have been some other intentionality uh, for, for how it was set up. And again, just knowing how powerful the Galileo is to be able to handle all that if I was tight in real estate on a console was really cool because uh, that was my first experience with the Galileo. One thing related to the Galileo that I had a big misunderstanding about is that I don't know why, but I thought the LV1 system used AVB internally for its communication oh, yeah, protocol. Yeah. And so I thought that that's why we were using the Galileo is that <laughs> everything was running on AVB and everything was on the network. And so then when I saw the ports on the back, I was like, hey, wait, why are you going to have to do an extra D to A, A to D? And it's like, oh no, the, the LV1 uses a, its own protocol called DigiGrid that runs on the network. But then, so I don't know why I thought that, <laughs> but that was confusing for me. So sure, another another proprietary communication protocol. Have you heard of the AppSys Multiverter? That sounds like a word you just made up. 
Yeah, I just did. I stayed at Holiday Inn Express last night. Um, so <laughs> multiverter, the multiverter, it exists in the multiverse. It, uh, oh man, <laughs> which one? So the multiverter, it's by a company called Apsis. I think they're out of. Germany, Austria, one of those companies. Anyway, it's been around for a little while, but it could, it, it's an 8 by 8 or I guess you can take either AES50, Matty over coax, Matty over fiber, Dante, and, and a few others, and they have inputs for all of them, and then translate them in banks of 8 to any other of those protocols. Wow. So for some reason, the rental house screwed up and shipped you a bunch of Matty IO, and you got a CL5 in front of house. So you're like, okay, no problem. Or if you have your own personal gear, I guess. Exactly. And that's what I was thinking about within the context of the LV1. So after the show, I immediately went and I knew about the multiverter just from like a Dante to AES50 or Dante to Maddie context is why I interested in it. And it's not cheap. It's like three grand, but it's one RU. So it's nice, which is cool. But they, on like their development roadmap, they had public on their website and they're like, hey, we're going to make a SoundGrid breakout box. Ooh, okay. Which is cool because like SoundGrid seems awesome and simple in layer two. And like the LV1 is super compact and like great for fly gigs, that kind of thing. But I was like, man, but there's not a lot of SoundGrid IO. Wait, hold on. I'm a little bit confused. I thought the protocol was called DigiGrid and SoundGrid is the app that runs on your machine. No, that's multi-rec. Okay, what's the difference between DigiGrid and SoundGrid? Or did I just make up the word DigiGrid? There is, I think there's synonymous. I guess when, when I look on Wave's website and Apsis's website, we're like, we are making a SoundGrid converter. Oh, okay. So I don't really know the difference between DigiGrid and SoundGrid, or if that's a thing. SoundGrid systems are software and hardware solutions designed to bring real-time processing and networking and the power of Waves tools to any system. So it's a, so SoundGrid is the system. Okay. DigiGrid is the product of a collaboration between Waves, the world's leading developer of audio, and the world's... Okay, okay. I don't know if we're going to figure out this here in the recording. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the difference between DigiGrid and SoundGrid. So if you're listening to this right now and you know the difference between DigiGrid and SoundGrid or yes. what is the communication protocol that Waves uses, comment on this or send me an email. Sure. The last one I have is noise. So this is a small one, but you know there was that moment when just for fun, I did get a smart measurement up I took a look at my audio analyzer and it looked like there was no low frequency driver on that X40. Oh, yeah. And you said, oh, maybe it's the noise. And I said, what are you talking about? So then I opened up the spectrum view and I could see that, yes, there was much more noise in the low end. And then once I just turned up the signal generator higher, then all of a sudden I had more data. Yay, more data. Yeah. <laughs> Good to be reminded to check that. Do you have anything else? It was in watching you do that measurement, even in not ideal conditions, looking at the magnitude response of the X40 we had, I was like... Oh yeah, you were blown away. You were like, I've never seen a speaker that flat. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, I mean, it was way cool. But yeah, you're not, not a live sound speaker in that kind of context, that flat. And again, I know you, you run your graph. You do plus or minus 24, right? Yes. Okay, as I used to plus minus eighteen, so I don't know if that might have had to do just kind of glancing, but even still, it was like, oh, I'm like all the way up to sixteen, and so uh, yeah, and even some of those things that you don't see all the time in real life, like you do, even if you yeah. if you do a prediction in Map or maybe any other modeling environment, it uh -huh. might not look as impressive as when you measure a real speaker in real life. 
And not only is it is it very flat or whatever the shape is that might be sure. interesting. Not only is it make an interesting shape, but there's the phase. There's no phase wrap where you expect no. there to be one. Yeah. So pretty cool product and just an interesting thing to measure. Uh, so f- for people who weren't there, like I was only measuring from maybe ten or fifteen feet away. So uh-huh. not a lot for it to go wrong, but still a pretty cool shape to look at on an analyzer (laughs) Uh, yeah i was like holy that is a eye shrink like that is flat and so uh which was yeah again super cool again a minus the stuff we had in the low end because we had motorcycles and construction yards around us but (laughs) (laughs) one note about the the zoom on the y-axis of the magnitude graph is that for a long time I had it at the default negative 18 to positive 18. Uh And then seeing other people like Merlin and Mauricio Mm -hmm. and Bob McCarthy, they would set their graphs to minus 30 plus 30 because it looks more like the old SIM machines. And also zooming out helps you to sort of avoid micromanagement and too much EQ and stuff like that. And so I just realized that I can probably change it on my monitor, but I felt like, I feel like the Y zoom is actually a a function of how big your screen is and your screen resolution. So I felt like my screen was smaller and it, and it actually, if I made mine 24 to 24, it looked more like other people's 30 to 30. So I feel like that's my compromise is I don't go, I don't zoom all the way into 18. I don't zoom all the way out to 30, but right in the middle. Man, you're such a peacemaker. <laughs> so yeah, it's cool. It's not. It's one of those things that like you, you don't have to use the same numbers as everyone else. You can just zoom in and out, and and uh, it, I think it really has to do with how big your monitor is and the screen resolution. Because like, imagine if you're like I don't know on a tiny like on a mobile device or something. Like you can now machines like uh, software like Sat Live has had a remote client for a long time. You can log into that on your phone, and in that case, you probably want to adjust the zoom on the y-axis and and maybe you're using like a little netbook to log in as a client for Smart. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that works. I haven't done that yet, but you know, yeah. So the screen could be too small. Sure. Uh, I don't think I have anything else. I have two more things. Oh, go ahead. In in talking about the noise, I have never thought about, I guess, noise reduction processing in real time in a live environment. Ooh, me either. Talk about that. And so having the LV1 system, and I'm not aware of this being in any other platform, unless you run like a waves, you know, sound grid system, like into your desk with cards or whatever. But that just, I kind of blew my mind when they're like, oh yeah, yeah. And you know, Fig, who was our engineer on this, like, yeah, yeah. And just throw on uh, this noise reduction plugin and it'll be great. And I was like, hmm. what? <laughs> what did we use? WPM? Is that was, a, that's what I, uh, WNR, something like that. I'm going to screw it. <laughs> they have like three different ones, NS1, sure. W43, and the one we actually used, which I forget. And it, it worked great. Yeah, I also can't remember exactly which one we used, but yeah, you could choose the band. So what was cool is that while we were just sitting there with kind of just your average noise floor without any of the marching bands coming by, then you could set the threshold to sort of take... We It was already surprisingly good with just that wind suppressor on there, that wind sock on there. 
But to, to remove some more of the low rumble from the wind, we were, we were scooping some of that out. And then we would set the threshold when the marching band actually came by so that their drums would cut through and, you know, the, the noise suppression would turn off just long enough for the drum to come through a little bit. And I thought that that was helpful. Yeah, you really had that dialed in. It sounded great. Do you want to talk so. about how we had some time to play with the mix I did a recording on a rehearsal oh, yeah. day, and then you helped me dial in the mix a little bit. And so you connected your computer to the network, and you set up a couple of plugins. Talk about yeah. how you uh, set that up. Or, or that's how we set it up, totally. but I guess talk about how we used it. Yeah, yeah. So we decided as a crew that we had a specific loudness target to hit for press, and that was going to be negative 24 LUFS. And so that was a goal is to make sure, okay, is it, we're, does a recording sound good, you know, and obey the laws of digital audio and all things before it. And then, so yeah, I wanted to make sure we delivered audio to the press at the right loudness target and also avoided any peaking or clipping. And then just fine tune it to make it, the recording just sound a little bit more polished. And so FIG or engineer multi-tracked everything the day before, and we also tracked locally in one of our machines. So then through SoundGrid, we were able to pipe it back into the console and make tweaks with what we heard the day before. And so it was mainly fine-tuning the high-pass filter placement to get rid of like the ultra-lows we didn't need. There was like this 150 kind of woofy stuff that we worked on and that and then that's when also you fine-tune the the noise suppression stuff to really make sure the actual impact of the drums came through and it wasn't just crushed but big thing at the end was basically saying okay the band at its loudest part i don't want to go above more than two loudness units above that neg 24 and so i used a l3 waves limiter to push the input volume to get it up to a program level and then drop the output by 2 db so i had 2 db of head room uh, you know and you may still get some inner sample peak clipping but by and large you still got 2db to play with so you won't make anybody what mad what was cool is that we you know all these plugins are available on the lv1 but i think neither of us are very familiar with them so we kind of used the plugins that you are already familiar with on your machine to teach us the new plugins so we were looking at the plugins on your machine and like setting eqs setting the limiter. And I guess at the same time, yep. I don't know if there's a way to do this. I guess there is because we had multiple screens, but it was nice to just have multiple screens. So we could like look at the loudness meter yes. on your screen and adjust the limiter mm -hmm. on the other screen. Yeah. And so then we did insert a loudness meter as the last plugin in the chain before the output to press on the LV1. But since not, yes. You and I, it's it's not super complicated, but it was just helpful to have, look at something first that we were familiar with before going to that. Yes. Yeah. Instead, because, you know, gain structure is something you can get right pretty, you know, looking at the waveform and your meters on the way, but loudness on after all your processing and management is really hard to do on the fly, you know, even with that meter. And again, with the marching band, just kind of, it came and it went. It's not like you get the whole first song or like a warm up, whatever to do. It's like, okay, <laughs> you don't want, you know, 18 people in a press riser saying you blew out their camera or they can't hear anything. And so, <laughs> so yes, thank you for mentioning that. Yes, we had the loudness meter on my machine, then also a fancy RTA called the oh, yeah, Total Balance fun. Control. So that had like a, a target built in and then it would just, it would show you a comparison of what your, an average of what your mix was over time compared to the target. So you could, yeah. you know, use that to make some decisions. Yeah, that was super helpful. 
What else do you have? The widgets. The widgets. Okay, I think I already asked this, but did we get to the bottom of this? Is this a word they made up or was this what they really... I think they they had made these. These were custom made or no? We, we I, still I guess don't know. so, because they, they kept saying... <laughs> I, no, I, we still don't know. The mystery has not been solved. Sherlock Holmes is still on the case. It's it is like Dave Rats four channel, right? So Rat Sound has these four channel Cat Five snakes. That's just analog audio over Cat Five, and then there are breakouts that get you back into in or out of XLR. And I've seen other people that have those in their kits. But what's interesting about this AV provider is that they almost exclusively rely on those. So they have lots of XLR, but for most of their runs, they just use Cat5. So I remember you and I were a little bit confused when we were looking initially at the first patch listings and the cable runs would say, Uh you know, net 250, net 100. That's where we, I thought, oh, we're running AVB everywhere. But no, it's analog yes. audio over these network cables. Yeah, so that was kind of cool to see how they implemented that. And even the patch panels on the back of all their I.O., most, they had some analog passive, you know, or XLR passive splits, but most of it was all just a bunch of RJ45. Yeah, yeah that was, was cool. pretty cool. So you kind of reduce, I guess, a little bit more work to build those patch panels to get that working. But then, you know, you are cutting your patching time by four every time because you just connect one thing and then you run out with it and it goes wherever it needs to go. So I guess the last thing about that is that we, I think you mentioned that we had three floors with speakers. So the way we handled that was to run one network cable all the way to the top floor and then break out into XLR and then run to each floor below, which was nice because otherwise, I guess if we didn't have another snake solution or multi-pair solution, we would have had to run three separate XLR cables all the way over there. Yeah, so just the overall experience of learning a new console, a new patching system, a new DSP, just how it's just cool to be in someone else's world for a bit and see how they do it and and hear the why. And they all, their whole team is very knowledgeable on the equipment, which was, which was great, or at least the, the, the ones who were supposed to be. You know, there was a few hands or like kind of shot people, whatever, but the people who implemented the rig, knew they were doing, knew how to troubleshoot it, and that was cool. Because sometimes you show up with a rig that is new, and you're the only person who's expected to figure <laughs> yeah, it out. Yeah, or a lot of times people own things, but they're not the experts at it. So you are still kind of expected yes. to be, yeah. or it just comes off of a truck, and it's just for you, and there's nobody else there. Yeah, so anyway, so that yeah, that was just overall a cool thing. Um, so let's say that we were going to b- go back and do this again. What's one thing that you would want to do differently. I'll give you a second to think about it because I already know mine is like more clothes, a better stylus, and, you know, like a mask that works better with glasses. Yes, those things. I would say uh, how calm was deployed. That's something I haven't talked about yet, but, you know, this show ups and flowed so much in the weeks prior to it, they even on site, kind of who's doing what. And my position on the show was the actual show caller was on the 50-yard line of the, the media stand. And as the different pr- parts of the parade walk by, he would tell me over the pliant, I guess, IP-based comp, hey, fire QA1, which was a specific VO, and it'd go over the system and everyone would hear it. But I, I'm the one hitting spacebar in QLab, but there are three other audio stations who weren't on the pliant con, they were just on radios as the audio crew. And so if there was a specific, the show caller would be like, hey, the zone over by the family needs to come up. I would say, copy that. I would have to take off one ear of my comm, look at my A1 who was on radio 
who was trying to listen to what was going on and be like, hey, this zone, oh wait, that's at the other computer that I'm not at right now. He'd have to tell someone else to go to the, the Compass computer and do it. And there was a point where we need, they wanted me to count down specifically to a VO time instead of the show caller doing it. So now I was counting down. So I was kind of like a sub caller of the show halfway through, but not able to talk directly with all of my crew because I wasn't on radio too. That was that was a perfect uh, storm. I guess I could have just been on those com deployant com were not deployed on our rehearsal day, and we didn't have the voiceovers on the rehearsal day, so all of the stuff only came together on show day. So yeah, so it, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Like, oh, but it would have been nice to have the VOs, but you know, we couldn't. And we stepped through on rehearsal day of like, can audio capture good sound, record it, and be able to troubleshoot and do all that. So like, the audio department in and of itself was ready, but dealing with all these external forces of like, how are things going to come through and how things are fired? How are we going to talk? Are we going to do all that? Wasn't something that that we got to, unfortunately. So thinking about audio's role within the overall show a little bit more is yeah. something I wish we would have done. Everyone needs to hear the show caller. I can't think of a position I've ever been in where the show caller calls and then someone else, our heads of department, you know, then relays that call. That's difficult. Yeah, it was. I, I used to work at, Starbucks in a former life and the person in the drive through taking the order is a similar role like you're having to hear like welcome to Starbucks what can I get started for you and you're like I would like a tall non-fat vanilla mocha with whatever and like the person making drinks has already had said like starting the drink but then they have to like oh no actually I want that ice and it's like crap hopefully they heard that and we're able to do it if they didn't I have to go tell them no it's ice not hot and so like I I, I literally had that moment of like <laughs> I'm making mochas right now so. okay Slightly related, have you heard this story that the state of Seattle is going to request the Starbucks in their state to help deploy the COVID vaccine? Because, no, I'm not. Contrary to what you have just said, because of their great reputation for handling complex logistics and customer service. From a customer service standpoint, I totally get that. Because I remember even getting paid eight bucks an hour, I was able to say to any customer, whether it was like a long wait or whatever, and be like, yeah, this one's free. I'm sorry we screwed up. We'll see you later. Well, you know, and that was cool to be able to say, like, I can I can immediately diffuse any situation because they've told me I can say, like, here's your drink for free. We'll see you later. You know, if someone keeps taking advantage of you, you can, you know, whatever. But most of the time, people are like, I'm already running late. I'm going to be mad at you no matter what because you're standing between me and my appointment and you are also making my mocha five minutes late. I'm ultra mad at you. And so I get that. We don't have to talk about this more if you don't want, but I'm just, I've heard a lot of good things about the way Starbucks employees are trained. And I've heard that they have this training program that they spend about a hundred, no, that they spend a million dollars on creating that everyone has to go through that basically, yeah, makes you kind of bulletproof in terms of not blowing up on customers. So if people are yelling at you and stuff mm. like you just, you know how to handle it because I've heard that part of the training is that you have to go through these scenarios of all the worst things that a customer might do and how you can basically stay level-headed. Sure. I mean, that, I guess I worked there in 2014, 2015. So I, so I don't remember like a complete like robust from management, like here's this program that helps you do that. But they did definitely have that as part of a module in like the onboarding. So they probably just expanded it into this. But yeah, I just, it was 
being able just to say, I'm sorry, own it, say, we screwed up. Here's your coffee. Have a nice day was usually enough to make people be like, okay, cool. And they still come back if they were a regular. And the fact that people who were regulars, we almost always knew their name. And I remember there was this woman named Karen nicest lady in the world. She would come in every day. She went to a venti iced coffee, no classic, and uh, useless information <laughs> I still remember. But the thing is, even if there was a line to the door and we saw Karen walk in and, and start waiting at the back of the line, somebody was already making her drink because it was Karen. Because like, she's nice. She talks to us. Even though I'm being trained to pour hot things as fast as humanly possible <laughs> uh, for profit, it's still that relationship aspect was cool. And so knowing that at our best, we could foster some of that, but at, you know, at a customer's worst, at least being able to diffuse it made sure that no one else's day was getting made worse because I'm not wasting 10 minutes in the drive through line arguing with the customer when I could just been making more drinks. And do, you, do you feel like that helped out. you at all as a sound engineer? Like, I'm sure there are times, or maybe it's just been unconscious, but I'm sure there's plenty of times on shows or even working in post-production when a customer has either become mm -hmm. really upset with you or... You know, tensions are high yeah. on live production. Did some of that training at Starbucks, you feel like helped you for those situations? Both in like my family setting and just from my nature. I'm not sure if you're an Enneagram person or not, but I am a nine, the peacemaker by nature. And so that's just kind of hardwired in me to be in any, and we're not going to dive down super deep down the rabbit hole here, but nines in their strengths move towards a three, which is the achiever. And so they are really good in broader social settings and good at being the glue. And so that's where I just kind of default as like, how can I not be deceitful, not be dishonest, not be a doormat for anybody, but how can I function to basically kind of be this Michelin man around that kind of helps sure. kind of cushion what's going Michelin on. Michelin man, I like that. <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes that requires you being assertive of saying like, okay, no one's taking leadership here. Here's what needs to happen. So some people just want some level of certainty that's going to be okay, right? So if that means I need to be a leader right now and say, here's the plan, let's go do it. That's sometimes what people want. Some people want to be the leader and just want to be heard and know that you're going to go do it. So then sometimes you assume that position because most, most of the, like a customer being unhappy, I mean, I had expectation at this other Starbucks down the street, I ordered something and it tasted like this and I come to yours and it does not. And some people say like, well, our uh, espresso machine is out where it's not calibrated. Like people don't want to hear that. They don't, they do not care. They don't want the reason why it's like, oh, that's why it tasted different. They just want a better result. And same things with audio. There's a great talk by Andrew Sheps, mixing engineer who has, he has a bunch of ways plugins and used to mix on a giant Neve for Adele. And now he mixes on a Mac MacBook. <laughs> I listened to a little bit of that. Yeah. He created the Omni channel. Um, I haven't hold the, heard the whole story yet, but yeah, he used to, didn't he used to own a bunch of stuff and now basically owns nothing in terms of gear? Yes. Yeah. I mean, he mixed on a giant Neve desk, had a ton of outboard gear. It was like Mr. Analog. And then uh, he just, when he was crunched for time, had to do a couple mixes just completely in the box and didn't tell the client that he did. And they said, this sounds phenomenal. And he said, <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. It sold most of it. And I get there's that tactile nature. It's fun working on analog gear. But if what he was after was making the best stuff for his clients and doing it efficiently and staying a sane human being and not have to stay up all night doing oh, recalls, man. then that was so a good one decision. Of the, as you're talking, I remember one of the, not a whole story, but one of the parts of a story that he shared was just how many times he would have a mix up all ready to go, you know, on a big analog console and, you know, be waiting for the client waiting, waiting, and they would never come or whatever. And then 
you know, he's got to do the next session the next day or the next week or whatever. So he's got to take it down and then they come yeah. and he's got to like figure out how to put it all back together. Ugh. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, if you had to do that over and over again, I would become very disenfranchised with this, you know, $150,000 door <laughs> doorway now in front of me of whatever. But the, the talk I'm referring to, it, it's called what comes out of the speakers is something he gave at Oxford. Cool. He was invited to go do the gist of it is, is, Especially if you found some random band on Spotify and you hit Spacebar and you listen to the intro, you're immediately going to make a judgment about it based on what it sounds like. Do you like that song? Are you into it? Whatever. There is not, you hit Spacebar and a 30 second clip that's an ad at like the top of a podcast that says, Hi, I, I, I'm mm-hmm. Michael Curtis. I mixed this. I was on a really <laughs> tight budget and my audio interface give out. So I actually had to go to my buddy's place who has only has a pair of NS10s. I'm used to mixing on uh, my head Typo 7s. So if you could just, you know, really take it easy, that'd be awesome. <laughs> hey, thanks. <laughs> and go straight into, like, mm-hmm. there's never that. And especially in live production, there's, it's, it's, it's what comes out of the speakers is what matters. And so knowing that's what people are looking for to have that connection. And again, that's only one thing. Does it sound good? It's just one of the thousand things your client could be looking for good in and of itself. Is it timely? Do I like the brand of speakers that are being hung? If I see that it's JBL instead of L acoustics, am I automatically going to assume that three K's could rip my head off, even though it's an A12 rig and out of Vertec, you know, <laughs> anyway, rant over. No, that's uh, interesting. <laughs> you make me want to go watch that video. Even though I've heard a tiny bit of the story already, you know, I'd like to hear more of that. Yeah, the experience of audio is so complex. And, you know, we should probably do another podcast episode where we do kind of a roundtable with some other engineers and, and and dive into some of these complexities. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we just want to make our clients happy, our customers happy. We want to be satisfied with our own work. And it turns out there's a lot of ways to get there. Sure. And so I definitely, as I've moved along in my own audio career over the years, I've kind of started to let go of this idea of right and wrong, even when it comes to physics and stuff, because I find that people, number one, people just get annoyed by that. If you come in with an attitude that I'm right, like that's annoying, but also that there just are so many ways to get to the same solution. And so it's really Mm. short-sighted just to say that there's this one way. Okay. So yeah, I love this topic and we'll, we'll probably have to, you know, talk more about it another, another future date. Yeah. I, yeah. I, can I, I have one more quick thought on that. I, I feel like Kanye. At the, at the <laughs> awards. I'm going to let you finish, but one of the ways I kind of help gauge if I'm working with a new engineer, how they're going to approach what they define as success is, and you probably saw me did this, you know, I had that little audio mass survival spreadsheet of a bunch of numbers and physics as like, hey, this is just a cool audio tool I like to use. I use it. And I, I, it's like, hey, can I send that to you? And oftentimes, this is just a link. They'll pull it up and look at it. And I'll just see like, what's the reaction to that? And and if their eyes just glaze over and they're just like, I just mix man, then I know like, oh, they're not going to care about an end fire array versus a gradient array. Like that's not their bag. They just want to be like, I got my cool analog sounding plugins from Waze. And I like doing mix, 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 mix. And you take care of the system. Or if they're like, oh, wow, a formula you should add below this is actually an end fire array planner. And I'm working on that now. Then I know like, oh, this is how I can relate to this new engineer and work with them. Not that's just this giant dichotomy of like you're a creative artsy fartsy mixer or a super technical person, but it's just how can I communicate totally. with this person? Yep. This kind of a yeah. one way to yeah. establish when that. When you first meet someone, 
I don't know what it's like. Like, what does it happen when two plumbers meet each other? What's that like? When two electricians meet each other? What's that like? It, I feel like it must be different because pro audio is largely unregulated. And so, yeah, when two sound engineers meet each other, you initially have to like meet on some level of communication. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know what my go-to phrases yeah. are, but there's usually some things you can throw out there. Like, I don't know, acoustic crossover, summation, I don't know, things like that, that if, if the person, the way the person responds knows that, you know, you need to adjust a little bit and it's not good or bad. It's just like, we're all trying to like get the communication thing done. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and like you said, knowing that there's multiple ways to get there, you know, you may say like, I can get a system sounding good because I know it sounds good because this math proves it's right. And I can validate it with my ears. But if people just want to validate with their ears only, it's like, okay, you can just release the math for a little bit and they're like, okay, yeah. that's just not right. a priority. Yeah. And, and so you just meet them on that yeah. level and you say, Hey, is this good for you? Great. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be great. Well, Michael, I don't, I don't think we even <laughs> need to really like wrap this up with a bow. We'll just probably like cut it somewhere and, and fade it back into the other part of the interview. So sure. Michael, do you want to talk about anything that's in your work bags? I think you brought your work bag with you. Are there any like unique or interesting pieces you want to share? I'll mention two things. There's probably some other tools that might do this better, but I carry the little Behringer P1. It's a double, it's a in-ear pack that's either nine volt operated or you can run it off a of Walmart or whatever. But what I like about it, it's, it's stereo and you can have two, two XLRs in it. And so I almost use it as like a signal verifier. And, and so if I'm going someplace, I'm running a long XLR and like, shit, I just realized I have one of those too, a really old one. And I could be using that for all these press molts that we have to verify. Exactly. Cause someone said like, well, I can't hear stuff. Well, you plug it in the press molt, throw the XLR. You don't have to do any conversion. Just take a regular old XLR, put it on mono mode on the pack, run into the left channel and boom, you hear exactly what they're hearing. Brilliant. Yeah. So that's been huge. And then uh, I built or I assembled from DIYRecordingEquipment.com a little reamp box. It can take a line level signal and step it down and make it unbalanced uh, as well for like a quarter inch like reamp thing. So if you want to send something out of audio interface into a guitar amp, but how I've been using it is since people are live streaming everything in the world now, a lot of people, these mom and pop, like the adult stuff that doesn't have professional gear they'll get these little ik multimedia irigs and that's just a quarter it's meant for guitars and it's just a quarter inch input but it needs to be guitar unbalanced level and so <laughs> the reamp box gets my signal out of the console i step it down make it unbalanced run it into their irig so they can stream from their iphone that's funny yeah okay so that's those two things have been really handy what about books what is one book that has Whoa. been helpful to you oh man i read a lot so this is hard uh, it's just the most recent one that's had the biggest impact to me is called The Practice by Seth Godin. It's, I've been reading him for a long time, and he's actually been saying for a long time on his blog and other places that people should be blogging daily, even if no one reads it, because it clarifies your thinking, gets stuff out in the world, and if it's public, even better, so people can look at it. And I've heard him say this in other places, but it wasn't until this book called The Practice of like it's the art of showing up and shipping your work and being unattached to outcomes. It just was really, really great. My personality is the type that usually has a lot of enthusiasm at the beginning, has lots of ideas, uh, very idealistic, and I start, and when actually boots are on the ground, I fizzle out really, really quickly, too quickly. And so having something that's over a long haul, if it's not made a daily part of my life, it can lose momentum very quickly. And so the idea of a daily blog is like you blog because it's Wednesday and it's Thursday, not because 
you want to or whatever was really helpful for me. So now I'm on, I wrote, finished one this morning, number 68, I think. So I haven't done, I missed one day. I was really mad. I just literally forgot. I was like, dadgummit, but it was otherwise 68 days in a row since reading that book. Nice. It was just about audio stuff. And it's everything from studio stuff, live sound stuff, like, you know, how I play bass, whatever. And so it's just random audio things of just a bunch of nuggets and thoughts and just kind of compiling in one place. So, yeah. So that book. The Practice. The Practice by Seth Godin. Uh, I, yeah. Uh, do you listen to any podcasts? Yes. I, I want to know like one or two that you have to listen to every time they come out. To answer your specific question, there are very few that every episode I listen to. But Me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, but I mean, so many. I've probably listened to about 40 of yours. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I've listened to a lot. And, okay. uh, and from like specifically in audio world. Uh, you only have 100 more to go. Okay, great. <laughs> but, I love it. I love it. 140 episodes in the tank. That's a lot, man. That's cool. I, I like that one. Uh, Seth Godin's podcast, again, because I'm a giant band boy, fanboy called Akimbo. I listen to a lot. Cal that was good. It's good. Yeah, I like Akimbo a lot. I thought about doing like a questions section at the end like he does. Yeah, it's great. Don't know if that would work. But you already have yeah. a PDF called 101 Sound. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But yeah, I like the way he, he has that set up. Anyway, go ahead. And uh, Cal Newport's. He has a podcast? He does. What's it called? Deep, deep Questions with Cal Newport. You, you listen to him talk and you're like, you're definitely a computer scientist. Yeah. Like it's, he's pretty dry. It's still, like I had my, there was a particular episode I really wanted my wife to listen to and she got about four minutes in and was like, I can't listen to him. Oh my God. Okay. And so like, I love the guy. I've, I've, you know, I've read every book of his, but or almost all of them. But anyway, so his, his is really, really good. Michael, where's the best place for people to follow your work? Uh, my blog is at producedbymkc.wordpress.com. And otherwise, I'm a digital ghost. No Instagram, no Facebook, no nothing. <laughs> I know. I was looking you up. I was like, oh, let me get his title on Instagram, on uh, LinkedIn. No LinkedIn. Nothing. 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 That's a, that's a whole other <laughs> fun conversation you want to have. I'm not scared the government's going to come find me or something like that. That's it. But uh, anyway, so if, 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 I guess me being a Cal Newport fanboy might also be telling and so as to why i'm doing that so. it should be and, and let's just say i think you're a great example for people who want to have a career and think that having a career means that they have to be on all the social media and that's not true yeah you're not the first person to raise eyebrows at me for, for that and be like wait how do you get work i still get work enough enough Another question would be you know what do you do with all your extra time Oh uh, man! <laughs> I, on Facebook. <laughs> uh, oh man! I, uh, I have a two and a half year old son and a four month old daughter, so that takes up go. a good bit. No, I, I love I being available for them is good. Trying to have I like skating, one of my hobbies. Friends and hopefully learning more audio stuff, making music, making records. Well, Michael Curtis, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Absolutely, thanks for having me, man. Sound Design. This episode was edited by Noah Feldman. It features music from an artist named Zenman. You can find more at www.zenman-music.de. Sound Design Live is supported by Ellis Learn Stage Lighting, Joel Sinqui, Bob Pedro Martin, Roadie Free Radio, Scott Ross, Voyager Sound, John Dave, DC Sound Op, Nicholas Kuba, Chris, and Terry. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 
over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. Thank you.